resources that he generated with a kind of astonished awe. In the end, it was really only physical decay and weakness that brought him down, even though his chosen policies had long been shown to be full of inconsistencies and what Mao himself termed contradictions. One goal of this book is to show how Mao was able to rise so high and sustain his eccentric flight for quite so long. Context was naturally intrinsic to the drama, and the narrative tries to introduce the essential background that any reader needs to make sense of Mao's life. Historians in China and the West are slowly hauling Mao back down to earth, deflating the myths that sustained him, even as they often exclaim over the patience and deliberation with which Mao and his confidants constructed those same myths. We are learning more about Mao's relations with his family, friends, and confidential assistants. And Mao's own youthful writings, his poems, original drafts of several key speeches, and a good many surviving personal letters, help us get some way into his mind. But many of the wilder flights of Mao's fancy, and the remarkable efforts he expended to attain them, take the historian out into a different zone, where the well-tried tools of exploration are of only limited help. I have come to think of the enigmatic arena in which Mao seemed most at home as being that of order's opposite, the world of misrule. In the European Middle Ages, it was customary for great households to choose a lord of misrule. The person chosen was expected to preside over the revels that briefly reversed or parodied the conventional social and economic hierarchies. The most favored time for the lord's misrule was during the twelve days of Christmas but they might preside, too, at other festivals or saints' days. When the brief reign of misrule was over, the customary order of things would be restored. The lords of misrule would go back to their menial occupations, while their social superiors resumed their wanted status. In the European examples with which we are familiar, the period of misrule was expected to be strictly limited, and the intention of the entire exercise was light-hearted. But sometimes the idea of Lord of Misrule would spill over from the realm of rebel to the realm of politics. Milton wrote of the loud misrule of chaos, and the need to overcome it if the purpose of creation were to be realized. In the seventeenth century, some churchmen applied the Lord of Misrule label to Oliver Cromwell. The term also came to have sexual connotations, as in John Lilly's sixteenth-century play Endymion, when the hero declaims that Love is a lord of misrule, and keepeth Christmas in my corpse. Similar types of reversals could be found in many other European societies. In some, the apprentices took over from their guild masters for a reckless day or two. In others, gender roles were reversed for a day, as the women took over the tasks and airs normally associated only with men. Chinese philosophers also loved the paradoxes of status reversed, the ways that wit or shame could deflate pretension and lead to sudden shafts of insight. Even if they did not specify the seasons, they knew the dizzying possibilities inherent in turning things upside down. To Chinese thinkers, the aspects of misrule were always embedded within the concept of order, for they were natural dialecticians and understood that everything contains within itself the seeds of its own opposite. It was Mao's terrible accomplishment to seize on such insights from earlier Chinese philosophers, combine them with elements drawn from Western socialist thought, and to use both in tandem to prolong the limited concept of misrule into a long-drawn-out adventure in upheaval. To Mao, 
the former lords and masters should never be allowed to return. He felt they were not his betters, and that society was liberated by their removal. He also thought the customary order of things should never be restored. There would be no twelfth night to end the Christmas season. The will of most people seemed frail to Mao, their courage to bear the pain of change pathetically limited. So Mao would achieve the impossible for his countrymen by doing their thinking for them. This lord of misrule was not a man who could be deflected by criticisms based on conventional premises. His own sense of omniscience had grown too strong for that. Acknowledgements I owe the warmest thanks to several people for their help with this book. Zhao Yi Lu was indefatigable in locating and translating recent Chinese sources on Mao and his family, and Argo Kaminis made a broad computer review of recent Western sources. Professor Zhang Guangda read the first draft with care and alerted me to several problems. Lawrence Luthi gave me copies of some important sources I had missed. Jesse Cohen's editorial suggestions were sharply on target. Betsy and Julie McCauley and Peggy Ryan typed the drafts with their customary unflappable precision in the face of imminent deadlines. And Anping Chin, besides helping with Mao's poetry, kept me always alert to what his actions and visions had meant to others. Chapter 1 A Child of Hunan Mao Zedong was born in late 1893, at a time when China was sliding into one of the bleakest and most humiliating decades in its long history. The Qing dynasty, which had ruled China with a firm hand for 250 years, was falling apart, no longer understanding either how to exercise its own power or how to chart the country's course into the future. For over thirty years, the Qing rulers had been trying to reorganize their land and naval forces and to equip them with modern Western weapons. But in 1894, their proud new navy was obliterated by the Japanese in a short, bloody war that also brought heavy casualties to the Chinese ground forces. Victorious, the Japanese staked out major spheres of influence in southern Manchuria, once the ancestral home of the Qing rulers, and also annexed the Chinese island of Taiwan, transforming it into a Japanese colony. Before the century was out, the Germans had seized areas of North China, near the birthplace of China's ancient sage Confucius. The British had expanded the territory they dominated in central China, along the Yangtze River. And the French were pushing their influence into China's mountainous southwest. In 1898, an emperor with a broad view of the need for economic and institutional change was ousted in a palace coup, only a hundred days after he began his reform program. And in 1900, as the old century ended, rebels in North China seized Beijing, and by killing scores of foreigners and thousands of Chinese Christian converts, brought upon their country an armed invasion of reprisal by a combined force of eight foreign nations. These catastrophic political events occurred as other elements of Chinese society were feeling the stirrings of change. In some of China's large coastal cities like Shanghai and Canton, a class with many of the traits of the Western bourgeoisie began to emerge. Some members of this new Chinese middle class had been educated in missionary schools and had acquired a knowledge of Western science, religion, and political structures. Others were exploring new aspects of business, discovering the effectiveness of advertising, 
distributing foreign goods inland and experimenting with new forms of labor organization in their fledgling factories. This new middle class also began to subscribe to Chinese-language newspapers and journals that advocated political and social change, to use the postal and telegraph services newly installed by foreign companies, and to travel on China's rivers by steamer. But in a largely rural inland province like Hunan, where Mao was born, such changes were barely felt. Only in the Hunan capital of Changsha might one have found a considerable clustering of self-styled reformers, and their eyes were turned more toward the far-off east coast cities than into the unchanging villages and farms that were spread all around them. Mao Zedong was born in a sprawling courtyard house with a tiled roof in one of these farm villages, called Shaoshan, about thirty miles south and slightly west of Changsha. The exact date was December 26, 1893. He began to work on his parents' farm at the age of six, and after he was enrolled in the village primary school at the age of eight, he continued to do farm work in the early mornings and in the evenings. Their farm was small by Western standards, around three acres, but in that area of Hunan such a farm was considered a decent size, more than enough to support a family if well managed. As soon as his reading and writing skills were good enough, Mao also began to help his father keep the family accounts, since his father had only two years of schooling. Mao stayed in primary school until sometime in 1907, when he was thirteen and a bit. At that point he left school and began to work full-time for his father, who had prospered in the meantime, buying at least another acre of land, hiring a paid laborer to help in the work, and expanding into bulk grain trade. <laughs>